Um, if you've got a Bible, you can turn it to 1 John. Uh, we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. And it's also printed in, uh, in your bulletin, I believe. Um, anybody here wish they were different? You know what I mean by that? Like anybody wish that you could change who you are, that you were better, that you were a better version of yourself. Change is a, a big thing, right? One of the big questions that we have in life. How do we change? How do we get better? How do I become the best version of myself? It's not even strictly a Christian question, is it? Uh, if you check the self-help aisle, there's lots, lots of options for you about how to get more fit, be more productive, uh, do better at work, all those types of things to become a better version of yourself. And underneath those questions are a couple of presuppositions. Number one, things that we maybe are not, maybe not even are taking into account. Number one, none of us are the people that we long to be. Can you grant me that point? Right? None of us are quite the version of ourselves that we want to be. And two, the, the idea behind the self-help industry is that if I can just find the right process, the right steps, the right motivation, or if you're like me, the right app on my smartphone, I'm just, I just want one app to fix everything for me. I've tried them all. I can finally become the person I want to be. Right? I can finally get the affirmation, love, and acceptance that I want in this life. So we're all hunting for this holy grail, this secret to real, lasting change. And at the same time, we are dealing with the fact that we're tired of doing that. We've tried a lot of things, have we not? So many things. And we're still not there. Nothing's working. It almost feels like this game of life is a little bit rigged against us. Even as Christians, as we try to become more like Jesus, keep falling back into old habits. It feels like the game is rigged. And in our darker moments, we start to wonder... Is it even worth trying at all? Is this ever going to happen? Am I ever really going to change? Is there any hope at all that I can be different? In our passage of Scripture this morning, the Apostle John tells us, yes, there is. But not for the reasons that you might think. Not because there's a simple five-step process to getting all the affirmation, love, and acceptance that you want in this life. But actually because in Jesus Christ you already have it. You already have it in Jesus Christ. John introduces us to what theologians call the doctrine of adoption uh, this morning. This idea that salvation in Jesus is not just about having your sins forgiven, that it is about that, uh, or having some kind of cosmic legal case solved with God. Uh, That's not just what salvation is about. It's about being brought into the family of God. If you believe in Jesus, you're God's child, and this has huge implications for how we change. Because John tells us that just like any other family, when you're in God's family, you bear the family resemblance. You bear the family resemblance, which is how we're going to change. We start to bear our Father's resemblance. Think about your kids. Your kids don't have to look like you, walk like you, talk like you in order to become your kids, do they? They do that because they already are your kids. Right? Their behavior flows from their identity. And John tells us it's the same thing with us as we follow Jesus. Our, our behavior flows from our, our identity as children of God. Okay, so before I read the text, two simple ideas this morning. The keys to how we are going to change. You didn't realize I was going to solve all your problems this morning. It's all about to happen for you. You ready? Two keys. Remember whose you are. Remember whose you are. Be who you are. Remember whose you are. Be who you are. Okay, with that in mind, let me turn our attention to the text. And before I do that, let me ask God to send His Spirit and to bless our time and His Word together. 
Heavenly Father, we now turn our attention to your holy and inspired word. We know that man doesn't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we need you to speak this morning. We need to hear from you. We don't need more advice from me or uh, entertainment. God, we need your word. We need your spirit to be among us. And we need you to change us, Lord. That is what we long for. We long to be more like you. And so I pray that you would do that by your spirit. Show us Jesus, that we might lean on him. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. First John 2. Starting in verse 28, we'll go to chapter 3, verse 3. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay, there's something powerful about the first time that you realize your parents are proud of you. I wonder if you can put, if you can tag that memory in your mind right now. The first time that you realize that your parents uh, were proud of you. My story, I remember it very vividly. I was playing baseball. I was probably seven or eight. I was not very good at baseball. That is shocking, I know. You look at me, you're like, what? He looks like such an athlete, natural one. Uh, thank you for saying that. That's very kind. Um, I was not, as a kid. I was really, really bad at baseball. And uh, I remember T-ball was fine in Mississippi. I grew up in Mississippi. This is how we did it there. I don't know how they do it in Texas. We did T-ball first, and then we did coach pitch, which is still an upgraded version of T-ball where they really want you to do well, right? So everyone's succeeding. It's a great time. Capri Suns for everybody after the game. It's awesome. Then you make this weird transition to kid pitch. And kid pitch is all of a sudden where no one wants you to do well. There's actually a kid your age on the mound throwing at you very, very hard. And uh, that transition did not go great for me. Uh, I, that season, struck out every time that I went up to bat. Not only did I strike out every time I went up to bat, I did not make contact with the ball. No foul tips, no walks, no nothing. I really just got to the point where I would get into the batter's box, I would close my eyes, I would swing three times, go sit down. It's really, it's still fine because you're going to get the snack, you're going to get the apple slices at the end of the game. They can't take the cool baseball pants away from you. It's, it was fine. My teammates were putting up with it. But then, finally, at the end of the season, and I'm going to make up some details here to make this more dramatic, because it's 10.30 on a Sunday. Let's have a little bit of fun with it. It's the last game of the season, and the last at-bat for me of this season. And I've got an 0-2 count. I've gone up there, I've closed my eyes, I've swung twice, and I'm on the verge of striking out again for what appears to be the last time this season, mercifully. And uh, I accidentally hit the ball. And uh, not only do I accidentally hit it, but I crush it. I mean, I really hit it in the fat part of the bat. And I look up, 
And I see that the ball is going out to right field. And I realize that the kid out there is like a carbon copy of me on defense. Like he's got finger in the nose, the whole deal. He's not catching the ball. So I realize we got a live one. we gotta, we got to move here. We're going to have to run. I know I've seen that before. And so uh, I start running to first base. And the first base coach is like, go to, go to. Which from context I take to mean run to second base. So I run to second base, I look up, the third base coach is waving me on, and so I start running towards third, and then he starts doing this motion. He starts waving me down, which I realize means that I'm going to have to slide, which I have never practiced before, because as you'll remember, this is my first time. Never had to do this. And so I kind of awkwardly roll into third base, and uh, but I'm safe, completely safe. And uh, in that moment, I do exactly what every kid who's ever had an accomplishment like that does, right? I turn to the stands, try to find my parents, and it's like, did you see that? Tell me that you saw that. Okay, pause the story for a second. Uh, Let's briefly consider the facts that we know about my baseball career as we pan over to my parents for their reaction shot. My parents have watched me strike out Every at-bat this entire season, right? This triple brings my batting average up to a .001 on the season. I am still a colossal failure on the baseball diamonds, am I not? What's the appropriate response from the average person to this triple? Oh, would you look at that? Magic exists. Like, this is, this is great. The kid hit a triple. How do you think my parents responded to the triple? Okay, let me tell you, before before you answer that question, you should know my parents are not like me. They don't have this incessant need for attention thing that I'm doing up here. They're very subdued people. They are, um, they don't, you know, they're introverts. How do you think my parents responded? They're losing their minds, right? My parents are jumping up and down. They're hugging strangers whose names they barely know. They're going crazy. They're shaking people like, did you see that? Did you see that? My son hit a triple. Why did my parents do that? Because I'm their son. Right? I'm their son. I don't care how many times your son strikes out. When he hits a triple, that's how you respond. When your kid hits a triple, that's how you respond. Because it's different when it's your kid. Right? Or at least it should be. In our passage this morning, John tells us that God calls us children. God calls us sons and daughters. Not friends, not neighbors, certainly not servants or slaves. Children. Children of God. And yet I suspect if I asked you this morning, what do you think God thinks about when He thinks about you? What do you think God thinks about when He thinks about you? Not many of you would conjure up a scene like what I just described. Where God is delighted with you. Like a parent is with a child when they hit a triple at the end of the baseball season, right? We read the story of the prodigal son this morning. In that same chapter in Luke, Jesus looks at his disciples. He's explaining a parable. And he says, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Do the math on that. There is more joy in heaven where God is over one sinner, not a person who's doing things well, a sinner who's messing up, who repents. Turns, not gets it together, repents. Turns, says, I I messed up. I'm a sinner who does what the prodigal son did and returns. There's more joy in heaven over that than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. We have a God who goes wild for the triple in a season full of strikeouts. 
do you think that God looks at you like that? Do you think that that's what God thinks of you when He thinks about you? Is it possible that God the Father might look at you like that? Okay, go back to the question I asked at the beginning of our time together. Do you want to change? The reason I asked this question about do you think the Father looks at you like this is because I think that you cannot begin to change in the Christian life until you understand exactly what your relationship is with God. And if you're not a Christian this morning, we're really glad that you're here, um, you haven't accurately understood what God is offering you, what Christianity has to offer you, until you get this dynamic that we're talking about this morning. That God's not merely inviting you to check off a series of boxes to get into the good place when you die. That's not what Christianity is offering you. What Christianity is offering you, what God is offering you, is a seat at His table. He's inviting you into the family. Inviting you into the family. Okay, so go back to the question. What do you think God thinks when He thinks about you? I think most of us go straight to our failure, do we not? We aren't living up to our own standards of behavior, much less God's standards. And that shame sends you in one of two directions, almost inevitably. One, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to be better. I'm going to get up earlier. I'm going to go at it. Jesus, I, I promise, you give me one more shot, I will not waste it. Right? That's where we tend to go. Or, if you've done that enough times and realized how badly that's going, it can cripple you. And it'll make you lay down in bed and want to give up and say, I'm never going to change. Why do I even bother with all of this? John, this morning in our passage, gives us the antidote. So what we're going to do right now, let's walk through the passage together. I'm going to pull out a couple things for us, and hopefully uh, we will see that if we want to change, we've got to reckon with this fact that God wants us in His family. And so first we have to remember whose we are, that we are God's. And second, we then have to live out that identity. Be who you are. Remember whose you are, be who you are. Okay, so let's look at the passage together, verses 28 and 29. John sets up an exhortation here by calling us children. He's doing that on purpose. That's not just a term of endearment. He's connecting everything that's about to follow to this. Little children. And then he gives the command. He says, abide in him. Talking about Jesus. Why does he say that? Uh, Why does he say abide in Jesus? So that, in order that, when Jesus appears, you can have confidence rather than shame. Abide in Jesus so that you can have confidence rather than shame. John's talking here about the second coming of Jesus, right? Jesus came one time on the earth, lived in the flesh, the perfect life we couldn't live, died, rose again, ascended up into heaven, and now we're waiting. We're waiting for Jesus to come back and make all things right, to reconcile all things and all people uh, to himself. And John says on that day, you can respond in one of two ways. You're either going to have confidence, you're going to be excited to see Jesus, or you're going to shrink back from him in shame. Mary and I, my wife Mary is here. We have a uh, dog, a golden retriever, about three years old, and her name is Charlie. Uh, she's got a boy named, very confused dog. Anyway, she's, uh, she's great. Charlie will do, she's pretty good about food for a dog. Uh, she won't like eat our food right in front of us, but if we leave something up on the counter, she often, as soon as we leave, will get up on the counter and get our food. And so one of the ways that we know that has happened is that if we come back in and Charlie does not greet us at the door, we know that she is hiding somewhere in a back room, right? Like many good dogs, she can also be a very bad dog. And we go find Charlie, and she's got those baleful brown eyes, and she is shrinking back from us. She didn't want to have anything to do with us, because she knows. She knows. We've we've talked about this so many times. 
Charlie, why, why A, can you not speak English? B, why can you not get that you can't get food off the counter? Why we keep leaving food out on the counter is another matter entirely. We're not addressing that here. Charlie's shrinking back in shame, right? She knows what she did is wrong. John says that's one option for you when Jesus returns. You can know this is bad news. This is bad news. Jesus is back. And I am not right with him. And you shrink back in shame. You have one other option, John says. You can be confident. You can be confident. You can be excited to see Jesus. You can be, literally the word here, bold. You can be bold. You can run up to Jesus when he comes back. Uh, there's a great picture that I saw the other day from uh, when JFK was president. And uh, some of you will know the picture that I'm talking about as soon as I describe it. But JFK is in the Oval Office. He's sitting behind the Resolute desk. And he's commanding most powerful man in the world in his seat of power. And you see underneath the desk... His son, JFK Jr., in his one of those little ridiculous outfits. I can't even remember what they're called. But he's just sitting there playing with his little toy car. It's a powerful image. That his son just thinks like, yeah, where else would I be? I mean, this is the Oval Office. That's the president's desk. You and I can't just go in there, right? But he can because he's his son. He's bold. There's a boldness that comes with being a child. There's a boldness that comes with being a son. And so John says that's an option too. You can have confidence when you see Jesus. So how do we sure, how do we go about doing that? How do we make sure that we respond with confidence rather than shame when Jesus returns? John says you abide in Him. Abide is one of those Christian-y buzzwords, I think, uh, that we kind of sling around with a lot of other words that don't make sense to strangers. It just means continue. Continue. Keep going with Jesus. That's what abide means. Keep going with Jesus. And how do we do that? We do it as little children. John says, if you want to have confidence when Jesus returns, keep going with Jesus like a little kid would. Sounds like Jesus stuff Jesus said, doesn't it? Uh, you have to become like a little child to enter his kingdom. So John says, little children abide in him. And he gets at this even more in verse 29. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Those who practice righteousness bear the family resemblance. I'm sure you've got this around here with kids that you see. You've ever had this where you see a kid and you don't know who they belong to, but then you look at them and you realize, I know exactly who that kid belongs to. Right? Because they just look like their mom or dad. You ever had that moment where like, ugh, you have just got to be a Smith or a Jones or a whoever. Right? Because they look like their parents. John says that's what righteousness is like for the Christian. People see us practicing righteousness. They see it and they know who that person belongs to. But the order there is of supreme importance. Kids do not walk and talk like their parents in order to become their children. They do that because they already are their children. That make sense? You have your father's eyes because you're his child. Having his eyes doesn't make you his child. You see which way it flows? In the Christian life, righteousness works the exact same way. It is the evidence that we are God's children, not the condition upon which we become God's children. Righteousness is the evidence that we already are God's children, not the condition. The condition upon which we become God's children is Jesus' righteousness. Right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's our story. And then the righteousness that flows out of that is because we've become God's children. That's the order. So, we don't obey in order to become God's children. We obey because we already are. So important. So important for us to get. I love the translation uh, that my Bible has here in verse 29. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices 
righteousness. I love that. Practices righteousness. Not perfectly executing righteousness. Practicing. What does it mean to practice something? It's our habit. We're working at it. We're getting better. We're not yet perfect. But we're bearing our family resemblance. We're more and more, we're starting to look like God and Jesus. Um, I think one of the reasons that many of us struggle in the Christian life is because we're constantly trying to overburden ourselves. Trying to get back on the wagon. Uh, we think we have to gain the Father's acceptance. Not realizing that we already have it. We're so like the prodigal son, working up that speech. Do you notice that? He's got a speech prepared. He's making a pitch to the Father. Okay, I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. Know that. I messed up. Can I be a hired servant? How many of us are doing that in our spiritual lives every day? Okay, God, I know. I know. I said I was not going to do that again. I said that I was not. Uh, But if you give me one more chance. We go to him like we're negotiating. And he says that he's a father who throws parties for sinners who turn back. If we're ever going to change, we have to remember whose we are. We have to marvel at our relationship with God that he calls himself our father. And that's exactly what John starts to do at the beginning of chapter 3. If you look back at verse 1, even in English you can catch almost how breathless John is as he tries to describe this amazing love of God calling us children. In the Greek, verse 1 literally says, From what country is this love? It's a Greek colloquialism, but you get it. What in the world kind of love is this? What in the world kind of love is this? That we should be called children of God. And not just called children... As if there's some kind of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing going on here. Where God says, yeah, I'll call them my children. No, John says, we are. So we are. We have become God's children. We really are. Which is why he says the world doesn't recognize us. John says at the end of verse 1, they didn't know what to do with Jesus. And now here come a whole lot of people, us, who look like him. And they don't know what to do with us either. We bear the family resemblance. Which is kind of humbling for me because I'm not sure that's ever been a problem I've encountered with people. That they had a problem with me because I looked too much like Jesus. That's scary. In verse 2, John keeps going. He starts getting more and more carried away about the fact that we are God's children. He starts imagining the day when Jesus comes back again. He says, yes, we are God's children now, but even newer and better wonders await. What we will be has not yet appeared. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of verse 2. He says, but friends, that's exactly who we are. Children of God. And that's only the beginning. Children of God, that's only the beginning. Who knows how we'll end up? It's not often that you see an apostle, a writer in Scripture, say, I don't know. I don't know what that's going to be like. They're pretty verbose, right? My Bible's got a lot of pages in it. Uh, John says, I don't even know. I don't even know what that's going to be like for us to um, become the next thing. We're children of God now. Something else is going to appear. This children of God status unfolds out into eternity. John says, I don't know what that will be, but I know how it will happen. I'm going to see Jesus, and I'm going to, in seeing him, I'm going to become like him. Uh, you ever met an old couple where like, the older that they get, the more they start to look like each other? And you have that weird moment where you're like, I hope they're not related. Please don't let, you know, from Mississippi, it's a question you've got to ask. But you see it, they start to look more and more like each other, right? Almost there's something they've spent so much time with one another. The love for one another has shaped them so much that it's like almost changing their genetics. Like their biology is changing. Jesus, John is saying that that's what it's going to be like for us in the blink of an eye. We're going to see Jesus and his love for us. Our love for him is going to change us so that we look like him. We're going to be like him for all eternity. We're going to look like the one that we love. Okay. 
So then John brings it back in verse 3. He brings it back to the present. He says, everyone who now has that hope in Jesus, this hope that is seeing him and becoming like him, they let that hope bleed into the present. And so this is point two. We've got to remember whose we are, but then we also have to be who we are. So John's inviting us into, in verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We start changing ourselves now because we know who we are. John is saying once you remember whose you are, you also then have to be who you are. You have to go live it out. Some of you had parents who would say stuff like right before you went out on a Friday night, remember your name. Anybody have any parents who said stuff like that? Remember who you are. You represent this household. Your parents were trying to remind you to behave, right? Behave appropriately. Dad would say, be a Nettleton. You're a Nettleton. Don't forget that. Be a Nettleton. There's a similar dynamic at play in the Christian life. We have to be who we are. John's saying we're God's children. And so now we have to live like that. You are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. You are working out your salvation with fear and trembling, even as God works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Is the way that Paul phrases it, Philippians 2. That we are at work even as God is at work in us. We're purifying ourselves. Not to make us God's children, but because we already are. It's a powerful thing to be reminded of who we are, yes? Uh, Cinderella Man, anybody seen that movie? One of all-time great movies. Russell Crowe at the peak of his career. It's a true story about a guy named James Braddock. He's a boxer during the Depression, and he's boxing at this point to support his family. And his wife is desperate for him to quit fighting. And in the climactic scene, she's begged him not to go into the ring with this one guy that he's about to fight for a big amount of money. And the reason that there's a big amount of money on the line is because this guy's killed other people in the ring. He punches so hard that other people die. And she is begging him not to do it. And all he can think about is his family and what it would mean for them if he could secure that money. And so he decides he's got to fight. He's got to go fight. And she's told him she's not coming. And there's this climactic scene. He's in there with his trainer, who's Paul Giamatti at this point. And Paul Giamatti's trying to pump him up. And he's telling him, remember all those guys that you've beaten? Remember, well, who were those guys compared to you? And he's recounting his history. And as you look at Russell Crowe's face, you realize it's just not, it's just not working. Now you can tell he's, he's sad. And then all of a sudden, his wife appears in the doorway, and his manager excuses himself. And he looks at his wife to see what she's going to say to him in this moment, after refusing not to fight. And she says, you can't win without me behind you. can't win without me behind you. And he says to her, I know, that's what I've been trying to say to you. And she goes up to him, and she starts, you know, messing with his tape and all that kind of stuff. But she tells him, you remember who you are. You remember who you are. You're the bulldog of Bergen. You're the pride of New Jersey. You're everybody's hope. You're your kid's hero. And you're the champion of my heart. You remember who you are. And you know that something comes alive in Russell Crowe in that moment. You're aware. I won't spoil the move for you. But you're aware. Something just changed in that man. Why did that happen? His manager was saying the same stuff just a minute ago, except for the champion of my heart thing, right? He's saying the same things. Remember who you are. It's a powerful thing for a person that you belong to to come and remind you of who you are. Something powerful about that. John is reminding us of whose we are this morning so that we can then be who we are. That God calls us His children. For those of you who are not Christians this morning, this is what, being, this is what you're being invited into. Uh, this is not a list of rules to check off. 
Christianity is not how you're going to get it right in this life. God is inviting you into His family to be a part of it. For those of you who are in Christ this morning, I want to invite you to consider, how would your life change if you remembered that God loved you like this? That God is your loving Father. And that you cannot lose His love. What if your morning devotionals went from being a means of checking boxes so you can feel good about yourself as a Christian to a means of meeting with that God? God who loved you like that. How would Hope Presbyterian Church be different if people came in here and knew it was a place where you're entering into a family? We're coming to be a part of God's family. A God who loves us, who will never, never, never cast us out. John tells us this morning, remember whose you are. If you want to change, this is the key. You're not going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You've got to remember, you are God's child. So be who you are. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can call you Father. You are a God who delights in us, your people. That you are a God who was not content to let us be set apart from you in our sin and in our failure. When we, like the prodigal son, claimed what was not ours and ran away and squandered it, God, and then tried to come back on our own terms. And you sent Jesus, a true and good elder brother, to die the death for our sin, to pay that punishment, to live the life we ought to have lived, to rise from the dead, who is seated at your right hand, that we might be called children of God. And so we are. God, I pray for those here this morning who have not yet believed that. Would you grab their hearts? For those who are struggling to believe it this morning, God, for those who have had fathers who were not good, for whom it is hard to call you Father, because they can't help thinking about that one, God, would you draw near? Would you be kind in your grace? Would you rewrite our stories? Would you make us like Jesus? Would you change us, God, for the glory of your great name? pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.